Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. So welcome to the New Books Network, where today we are joined by Dr. Gleb Tsurpiski, a cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist, to discuss his book, The Blind Spots Between Us, How to Overcome Unconscious Cognitive Bias and Build Better Relationships. I feel like in a world with as many blocks between individuals and groups, there could be no better time to learn about and take action to sort of uh, overcome these divisions. So I'm excited to talk to you about some of the strategies and tips that you discuss in your book. Thank you very much, Sarah. I'm excited to be here. Let's jump in. Yeah. So first, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself a little bit about your background and the motivation for you writing this book. Sure. Happy to. I'm really passionate about helping people make better decisions, partially because my parents didn't make decisions when I was a child. (laughs) So they did not make the best decisions. And they talk a little bit about that in my book. So for example, my dad was always kind of a penny pincher and my mom liked to spend money. So she'd go out, she'd buy a $100 sweater and she'd come back and my dad would yell at her for buying a $100 sweater. And then she'd bring up, you know, stuff he did and then they'd go at it and have a conflict, fights and so on. And you know what? This sort of thing happened again and again and again in their relationship. And I noticed that and I was like, wait, this is not right. <laughs> that, that's, that, that, that's dumb. Why do you keep repeating the same pattern and making the same mistakes? And that is a terrible, terrible thing that happens all the time in relationships that people get into repeating the same mistakes. And we can talk about that a little bit more in depth. But that's something that prompted me to realize that, hey, you know, my parents don't have it figured out. <laughs> other people, when I was growing up and saw all the other folks in relationships that were not doing so well, both in people around me and in books and video and movies and so on. You know, all the stuff about conflicts and tensions, like you said, polarized society, that people don't have it figured out. And so I decided to study decision-making. How do people make their decisions, including about other people, which is what relationships are about. How do you make the right decisions about other people versus the typical way we make decisions? I went and I got a PhD in the history, focusing on behavioral science, 
So that was my fascination. I was interested in how people made decisions in historical and contemporary contexts. And I studied that. I uh, got a PhD at UNC Chapel Hill. I was a professor for seven years at Ohio State. And right now I'm independent. I do coaching and consulting and training on addressing unconscious bias and good relationships and more generally good decision-making as the leader, CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts, a boutique consulting, coaching, and training company. And of course, I write books like The Blind Spots Between Us, How to Overcome Unconscious Cognitive Bias and Build Better Relationships to help folks address these sorts of problems. Yeah. So what kind of uh, consulting work do you do um, like with the Disaster Avoidance Experts? How did that sort of come about? Well, what we do is help people make sure that they understand and relate to each other well. So talking about relationships, for example, how do you as an employer, a leader, motivate your team? It would be typically seen by employers, hey, I need to give them more money, right? In our time of the great resignation, that that is something that I need to retain people. Otherwise, they're going to leave, so I'm going to give them more money. Well, when you look at the research, so I'm all about the research on behavioral science, cognitive neuroscience. When you look at the research, money doesn't actually motivate people very much. Up to a certain point, I mean, people need a sufficient amount of money, but once they have a sufficient amount of money, that's not what really motivates people. What motivates people is the things like status, things like reputation, things like peer relationships, and very much so the relationship with their supervisor, with their leader. So if you look at what actually motivates people, mostly it's about relationships. It's about their social connections in the workplace. And the most important relationship is with their immediate supervisor. That determines something like 50 to 70%, depending on the study that you look at in the industry and the kind of firm of of what actually means that somebody will be retained and somebody will be engaged and productive. So engagement and productivity and those are incredibly important things for a company's bottom line or if you're nonprofit for your productivity. So if you really want to make sure that you retain people, you give they have high engagement, they have high productivity, you want to work on people's relationships with each other, especially the supervisor's relationship with their supervisee. And so that is a big area of where we work because leaders are not taught how to have good relationships with those they lead. That's just a fundamental thing. You know, if you've ever had a boss that, or heard about a boss, so your coworker having a boss or somebody else having a boss that doesn't know how to lead, that they hate, you know, that's kind of a typical stereotypical image. That is not the kind of relationship that will retain an employee, motivate an employee, get them to be engaged, get them to be productive. This is a big, big problem in the United States and around the globe. So this engagement motivation is a really big area. And it relates to one of the concepts I talk about in the book called the empathy gap. So the empathy gap is one of these dangerous judgment errors, and we'll talk about what those are in depth when we get into the book, but I just want to bring it up here. It's a gap between what we perceive as our emotions and the importance of other people's emotions. So there are two dynamics here. One is we underestimate the importance of our own future emotions. We think we're more cool, calm, and rational than we than our future selves actually are. So that's one. And second, we strongly underestimate the impact of other people's emotions. We think they're more calm, cool, and rational than they actually are. When you look at the research, people are 
90% of our behaviors, thoughts, actions are determined by what we feel, not what we think. And that is something that employers just don't target and they don't realize it, that really what motivates your employees is their emotions, not their cool and rational things, but their emotions. And that's what you need to address first and foremost. So that's an example. And there are a number of other examples that I'm not going to go in depth into down those rabbit holes that we do. But that's an example of the kind of engagement, looking at these relationships, looking at the emotions, helping folks make better decisions because they focus on the relationship with their employee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I feel like this, maybe we can start getting into sort of like the meat of the book here. Um, I feel like even though like this, this is like the, the bulk of your work, um, like so much of like overcoming our blind spots, like comes down to kind of what you just said about like realizing that we have this like what you call like an autopilot system or what like the system one slow thinking that other others have have named. Um, but that just makes me wonder, and this kind of is like a maybe like a high level, high or low resolution summary of like what what your book is like, but it's like, how do we sort of retrain this automatic system and like what motivation is almost required to have the system change long-term towards something that's more of a, what you call an intentional system. So let's dive deep into that and talk about what this autopilot system, intentional system is. So that found, that is a foundational concept. You know, if you haven't kept up with recent behavioral economics, neuroscience, cognitive science, the old model of Freudian id, superego, all of that sort of stuff, ego is dead. It's no more. That's not what how the brain actually works. What the recent research shows is that, very roughly speaking, we have two systems of processing information. And that's what thinking is. It's how we process external stimuli. So it's just kind of what is thinking and what is feeling. That is, the, that is our response to external stimuli, external information. So thinking and feeling, all of these mental acts are about processing information. And there are two primary ways we process information. One is very instinctive, very quick, very automatic, autopilot. It's also been called System 1 by Nobel Prize, uh, by the Nobel Prize Award winner, Danny Kahneman. I prefer the term autopilot because it's much more clear what it actually does. It's when we go on autopilot, and it's not a bad thing. And if you think about yourself driving, you need to drive most of your time on autopilot once you learn how to drive. You know, you're not going to be successful if you're thinking about every action that you're doing. You know, that's not great. So autopilot system is good in many situations, but it can lead us astray when we make systematic errors. And there's a reason so many people die in car accidents because they get overconfident and they think that they, they know what they're doing when uh, people are not actually as good drivers as they think they are. There was actually a study on college students asking them, do you consider yourself an above average driver or a below average driver? Well, guess what? 94% of college students believe that they're an above average driver. And if you're a college student, they don't really have much experience driving, right? <laughs> so people tend to be way overconfident. It's like, oh, yes, I can make that turn. Yes, I can cut in front of that car. And then that's how you get into a crash. Not good. <laughs> so the college students are an example, but all of us have some degree of overconfidence. There was a study done on professors at Stanford, and it was asking them, you know, when you compare yourself to other professors at Stanford, do you think you're in the top half or bottom half of all professors? And 90% found themselves in the top half of all professors magically. <laughs> you know, so that's the, called the overconfidence bias, where we tend to be too confident about ourselves and our abilities. 
So this autopilot system that we're talking about here, it, it evolved. We need to go back to why it evolved. What's the point of it? Why is it useful? Well, it evolved back in the savannah environment when we lived in small tribes of 50 people to 150 people. And that's what it's for. It's great for tribal relations. At that time, we needed to be very tribal to each other. We needed to be very tribal because if we weren't sufficiently tribal, we weren't sufficiently loyal to our tribe, our tribe would kick us out and we'd die. Or a foreign tribe would take us over if we weren't sufficiently hostile to other tribes and we'd die as well. We're the descendants of those who, you notice, didn't die. <laughs> so we are very much wired to be strongly tribal with our automatic impulses and responses. And that's a provides a whole basis for a number of dangerous judgment errors. So that's one. Another set of dangerous judgment errors comes from another evolutionary dynamic called the fight-or-flight response. You might have heard of it as the saber-toothed tiger response, which was better for our ancestors to jump at a hundred shadows than to miss one saber-toothed tiger. Again, we're the descendants of those who jumped at a hundred shadows and the others were eaten who were slow to jump at those. So that is a basis for overconfidence bias and a number of other these dangerous judgment errors, which we'll talk about. We had to be overconfident, too confident to make decisions quickly in that environment. So we not gathering sufficient information, just making snap quick decisions. That's what overconfidence, a fundamental aspect of overconfidence is. So that is tied into the saber-toothed tiger response. So you want to think about these things, our brain, as really coming from that evolutionary background, that autopilot system. Now, we also have another system of thinking called system two. I prefer the term intentional system. That's the much more cool, rational, logical part of ourselves. That's the one that thinks numerically, that doesn't think in binaries, that thinks in ranges, that can be analytical, that can realize that we are making mistakes in the road, and so on. And that's the intentional system. Now, we can't be in the intentional system all the time. People get this confused a lot. They think I'm advocating that we be intentional all the time. I'm not. Um, what we really want to do is use this rational, logical system, part of ourselves, to notice when our autopilot system is making mistakes. You can notice when you're falling into the empathy gap by thinking something like, am I underestimating the extent I know that we all as human beings tend to underestimate the extent and impact of other people's feelings. Is this a time when I might be doing that? And so that's when you can catch yourself. The overconfidence bias, you can catch yourself. You can think, oh, okay, in this activity, I might be overconfident about the quality of my driving or or whatever other things you might be thinking about. And you can catch yourself falling into that. You can be overconfident about your evaluations of other people's responses to you so kind of about relationships, overconfidence is a big problem in relationships. So you can be overconfident. So you can notice these things. And the intentional system is very useful for learning new things, analyzing new things, and noticing when the autopilot system goes wrong. So those are the two systems that you want to be aware of. And again, they're coming from that evolutionary background, also just from the fact that our brain is inherently lazy. So we have a lazy brain. That's just the way it is. It it wants to minimize energy, glucose consumption. And so it's going to take a lot of shortcuts, heuristics. You might have also technical term for those as heuristics. So it's going to take a lot of shortcuts. And those shortcuts will be mostly right, but they will be systematically wrong in some cases, like the empathy gap and the overconfidence bias. We'll talk about a number of others. And so the 
problematic ways that we make decisions. So are called cognitive biases. So cognitive biases describe the patterns in our processing of information, in our thinking and feeling that deviate away from rationality. Rationality means what you, the best ways of making decisions to reach our goals. So if we have a relationship, we have some goals for that relationship, the rational approach to it would be described as the approach that best meets our goals if we behave and make decisions in the way that best meets our goals. And deviations away from that are cognitive biases, are these mental patterns that cause us to make mistakes in our relationship. And so that's how you want to be thinking. That's the broader framework of what's going on. And I'll give you an example that actually just came up yesterday. I was talking about leaders and teaching leaders how to do how to, to do well. So one of the things I'm helping leaders do is transition to the future of work, meaning hybrid and remote teams, what is going on there, how do you play those dynamics, how do relationships work there. So I was talking to the executive director of a 400-people organization, and they and he we were talking about providing social money for social activities for the lower-level supervisors. There's a number of lower-level supervisors who lead five to eight people teams within that organization. And those lower level supervisors have some amount of budget that they have. And we were talking about providing, okay, we want to help them make sure that they have social events for remote and hybrid employees. And well, how do you do that? You, you fund those events. You give them 20 bucks for lunch. That is the nature of the conversation that we're having. And he went to his leadership team, he proposed that, and they said, no, they have their own budgets. Why don't they use those budgets? And he came back to me and said, well, the leadership team said this, that they, we, we don't need to spend it. And I told him that, look, these people, they have a budget that they are not currently not using for this purpose. And if you, and they were just going to send out a reminder email to people to use this. If you just send out a reminder email and tell them you should use it for this purpose, they're not going to use it for this purpose because they're trying to keep their budget for other needs that they might have, emergencies, end of the year, whatever. That's what they're keeping their budget for. They're not going to use it for this purpose, even though they could. And so from a behavioral science perspective, cognitive neuroscience perspective, if you just send out that email, what you're doing is saying you don't really care about social events for hybrid and remote employees. That's the effect of your actions. That's the consequence of your actions. And that shows some, some a number of dynamics that we're talking about here. The leader fell into the empathy gap. That thought, okay, you know, they have a budget, they can use it, uh, so the executive director. But he didn't realize the emotions of the subordinates, of the supervisors, that these supervisors are anxious about the budget that they have. They're worried and they want to preserve it for the end of the year just in case something happens. There, there are other problems that they might use it for. And they would see this as kind of a frivolous use of this money. So if you want to address this, so you didn't realize what was going on in the emotions. So he was just kind of analyzing this coolly and rationally. And so was his leadership team that was encouraging this decision. And so I came back to him and said, look, look, you, if this is the decision, you can go ahead and make that. But that's effectively saying that you don't want this to happen. He's like, no, we really want this to happen. We'll find the money elsewhere from the central fund of the organization. And we're going to tell them that they can use the central fund of the organization for this purpose. And that's a perfect illustration of a cognitive bias at play, kind of the underestimating the emotions of 
folks that are that are making decisions at the lower level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that that almost makes you wonder sort of how have like our goals as humans sort of evolved away from these more like tribal fight and flight environments to like these more complicated hierarchical um, like of heuristics that like don't play into our like instinctual system one autopilot. Like how, how can, how, how have our goals sort of like morphed towards and how society sort of changed to sort of require us to be more intentional and to sort of overcome these um, cognitive biases. I know you mentioned at the beginning, you have, you studied the history of, of decision-making. So I'm just kind of curious your, your thoughts on that. Sure. So let's think about our own society right now. And we'll see that we have not evolved from that. (laughs) I mean, if you talk, if you talk about tribal impulses, our society is very tribalized and polarized. And that's because people don't realize this. So the crucial thing that people don't realize and they don't think about, and what you really want to be aware of is that the feelings that you're having about other people are not necessarily indicative of truth, of reality. And that, I'm going to repeat that again. The feelings that you have inside your gut, your intuitions, are not necessarily indicative of what's true and what's good and what's real. We feel that people who are like us are better than they actually are. We feel that people who are not like us are worse than they actually are. That's the fundamental roots of tribalism. These are called the halo effect and the horns effect. So the halo effect, it's like someone has a little halo on their head. The more characteristics, if we like one character, that describes the mental pattern of if we like one characteristic of someone that is important and salient to us, we will tend to like their other characteristics more than they deserve. And if we, the horns effect is the opposite. If we dislike a characteristic, we will tend to dislike their other characteristics more than they deserve. A perfect example is something that a number of your listeners might have been thinking about as I started speaking. Obviously, I have an accent, right? So a number of people, when they first meet me, ask me, you know, where are you from? And I'm from a country called Moldova, which is definitely under threat uh, right now with the Ukraine with the Ukraine invasion. Actually, I am of Ukrainian heritage, so mixed Moldovan and Ukrainian heritage. My father is from Ukraine. My mother is from Moldova. I was born in Moldova, and I spent my summers in Ukraine. still have family in Kiev, so I really don't know what's happening to them under this Russian bombing, it's a really, really big problem and something I'm really worried about. So can't, we are not able to get in touch. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's kind of a separate issue. But uh, this is, so I came here, I grew up in the United States and I grew up in New York City, which is a cultural melting pot. And I heard people speaking tons of tons and tons of different accents around me. And my parents taught me to be proud of my cultural heritage. So I kept my accent. And when you're a kid, you can kind of work on dropping, but I kept my accent. And I found out later when I was going for my PhD studying this, that that was kind of a dumb decision because of a tendency called accent discrimination. There's a widespread perception when you look at studies, when you look at research of those people with foreign accents, that if you have a foreign accent, you're less trustworthy. It's just a clear correlation. There's only one accent to which this doesn't apply. Do you want to guess what that is, sir? Right. So English, British, whatever you call it, right? It's the English accent. That's the big thing. You still have that cultural imperialism going for you. <laughs> right. So 
that is not well, not something to which it applies. But to other accents, it does. And so people with foreign accents are perceived as less trustworthy, again, because they're perceived as not part of our tribe. And so that is an important dynamic that explains a lot of what's going on here in the United States. If you look at all the isms, the discrimination, racial discrimination, gender discrimination bias, obviously, LGBTQ, all of those religious-based discrimination, politically-based discrimination, all of those things are rooted in tribalism, where we perceive people to be part of our tribe or part of a different tribe based on certain characteristics. And we either like them more or like them less, trust them more, trust them less. And because people don't realize that their intuitions are lying to them, are causing them to go in the wrong direction, that's leading to a lot of the polarization that we're seeing. We're living in a global, multipolar, multicultural society. Ideally, we would realize that tribalism is a big, big problem if we want to live in this society. And we would be fighting these instincts and addressing them effectively. We are not. This is why what we can see in so many organizations, so many leaders who are making bad decisions, discrimination is unfortunately rampant and systematic. And so we have to realize that what's going on at the root of this has to do with our brains and our intuitions. Because if people feel a certain feeling toward other people, they believe that their feeling is indicative of reality, of truth. And therefore, they, it results in discriminatory feelings or they unduly favor somebody else. And this applies across the board. So I was giving a presentation in Ohio State to the HR conference here in Central Ohio. And Central Ohio is well known as the home of the Ohio State Buckeyes, the college football team. Very famous, very, very popular. Our big rival is the University of Michigan. Oh, I know. I, I went to Michigan. In, yeah. Oh, there you go. So you know exactly what I mean. So yeah, so you'll resonate with this. That's good. So I was giving a presentation. It was 2018. And I and this is a closing keynote of the Diversity Inclusion HR Conference. Over 100 HR leaders from Central Ohio. I asked them whether they would hire a University of Michigan fan. And only three of them raised their hands. Only three of them would be willing to hire a University of Michigan fan. And I, the nice thing is I have this on video. <laughs> and so whenever I do trainings, so as part of the disaster avoidance experts, consulting, coaching, training, I play this and people are kind of embarrassed, but they realize what's going on, kind of this tribal impulse. You know, oh, Ohio State versus Michigan. I don't want to hire a Michigan fan. And it seems trivial, right? <laughs> but, you know, you, you went to Michigan. You know how powerful that rivalry is. It doesn't only apply to football. It applies to everything, blood drives or whatever, other things. Uh, so it's a very powerful rivalry and people feel strongly about it and it results in discriminatory actions without people realizing. I mean, if this is what happens for football fandom, you have to realize that this is what happens for race, color, ethnicity, religion, politics, everything else. Yeah, definitely. And like to a much bigger extent and football is definitely uh, <laughs> not as, is more trivial than, than other things. Um, that kind of makes me, or you talk about the difference, or you clarify early on in the book, the difference between like a cognitive bias and like a, a social bias. So I was wondering if you could sort of briefly, briefly distinguish between between those two. Sure. So we have one is an academic scientific term. One is a colloquial term. So social bias is anything that people use to say that, well, this is making an unfair, unjustified 
decision. Whereas a cognitive bias is a technical term for a deviation away from rational thinking. If you think about other societies, uh, so let's say in India, there's the, the problem of the caste system, right? Which caste you are, and that determines a lot in life. In the United States, that really doesn't matter what caste you are. When you come here from India, it, it doesn't matter. Or in if you think back, not across distance, but across time, think you know, in the past, if you were noble blood, that was very, very important. Um, now, nowadays, it doesn't really matter, <laughs> you know, all of that sort of stuff. So we see that things that were important, dynamics that were important in the past, are not at all important right now. And or in different contexts. In our context, things like race, things like gender, things like LGBTQ status, religion, politics, those are much more important, but especially things like race and gender that can be immediately visibly seen. So those things are accent that can be heard. <laughs> so those are the things that are much more important. And those dimension, those dynamics, th- that would be the kind of social bias, the racism the gender, misogyny, and so on. Now, accent discrimination. Now, those things all build up on top of our intuitions, our tribalist intuitions. So the halo effect and horns effect in India would be expressed through castes. In the past, it would be expressed through noble blood versus commoner blood, and so on in different contexts, whatever whatever happens to be the in-group, out-group dynamic for that specific society. So tribalism is expressed in different ways, in different contexts. And the way that it's expressed, that is how that society talks about social bias, unjustified, unfair decision-making, where you evaluate someone incorrectly based on certain characteristics. And that's all rooted in these thinking processes, the halo effect and the horns effect, which all go back to that tribalism dynamic. So also in the book... um... Two of the strategies for like sort of overcoming these cognitive biases are like considering other people's opinions and considering alternatives. Um, I think that these are like great for like getting yourself out of your own brain and out of your own biases, but it's also really hard because as you also show in this book, like our assumptions about other people and the world are also skewed. So I was just wondering how we can effectively and accurately consider things outside of ourselves when like we are biased and we know that others are as well. Well, nice thing about it is that we can use other people's biases to correct for our own if we know about other people's biases. So, for example, one of the things I talk about in the book is the optimism bias and the pessimism bias. And these are kind of like that sound. So the optimism bias, I'm very optimistic. That means I tend to see the glasses half full. I see the grass is green on the other side of the hill. I wake up before breakfast and I have 20 ideas and I think they're all brilliant. <laughs> right. That's kind of, you know, that's the type of thing that goes on. And so the people who have an optimism bias tend to be entrepreneurial, creative, risk-taking. They tend to found organizations. They tend to be kind of visionary, but they also tend to be risk-blind, and they also tend to be chasing after shiny new objects too much. So that's a problem. Now, people who have the pessimism bias, and by the way, this is not a binary. This isn't a scale. There there is a range. People who are extremely optimistic, people who are extremely pessimistic. I tend to be on the moderate extreme, kind of between moderate and extremely optimistic. Let's say that way. So maybe 8 out of 10, 7, 8 out of 10 for optimism. So for pessimism, 
these are people who tend to be risk averse, who see the glasses half empty, who see the grass as green and as yellow on the other side of the hill. And these are people who tend to be risk averse and they tend to be great at improving things, managing things, fixing problems, spotting flaws and addressing them, being a devil's advocate. But they tend to fall into the problems of stagnation and complacence in the risk aversion. So my wife is a pessimist. <laughs> That's her kind of, she falls into the pessimism bias scale. I tend, to, I fall into the optimism bias scale. So it was tension for us to get along with each other at first. But once we realized these dynamics going through the PhD program, realizing what's going on, we learned, I learned how to manage those things very well. So I have 20 ideas before breakfast. I mentioned, I think are all brilliant. But of course, they're not all brilliant as I learned to my chagrin. It's not how it feels. These ideas feel good, but they're not all good. So I work with her and my company. It's a six-people company, disaster avoidance experts. Uh, so I'm the CEO. She's the COO. So she does a lot of implementation, management, and so on. So I give my 20 brilliant ideas to her. And she says, well, these are all half-baked potatoes, but these three are worth finishing baking. And then she works on those, manages them, fixes them, and implements them, because that's her strength. That's a great use of people, external, getting an external perspective, which is one of the which is one of the debiasing techniques. So when you think about these cognitive biases, the way to fix them, and that's more of my area of expertise is the debiasing area. How do you fix these area, these problems? You have kind of people like Daniel Kahneman and Dan Ariely who were working on discovering these problems. I'm kind of the next generation who's working on fixing these problems. That's the debiasing area. And one of the ways is to get an external perspective from people who have a different perspective than you. So she has a very different perspective than me, and we collaborate well together because of that. So you want to think about, okay, who has a different perspective than you who can correct your perspective. So you want to know about other people, you want to know about their perspectives, and you don't want to simply go to a person who is optimistic. If, if I went to a fellow optimist, they would reinforce my ideas, and you know we'd have a 20, 40 ideas before between us, and we'd reinforce each other's ideas, and we'd be running in 40 different directions. That's not the way you run a business. That's not the way you run a relationship either, or your personal life. Not good. That's the shiny new object syndrome. Bad, bad, bad. So you want to look for a person who compensates your weaknesses and who complements your strengths. So that's the external perspective dynamic. And that's really important. Now, you also, so you mentioned another way of addressing cognitive biases, which is considering alternatives. That's a very powerful technique. So when we look at research, when people, for example, when you're looking to make a business case, let's say talking about business, we talked about that people or you're making an argument with your relationship partner or with your community group, people tend to try to prove their point. They have a point. They are trying to prove it. They tend to either make a business case or whatever other sort of case, you know, community group case, relationship, whatever case you're making for your point. That has been shown to be quite problematic because it causes you to not consider why you might be wrong. <laughs> What's much more effective is to look for reasons why you might be wrong. So try to not prove your point. Try to disprove your point. Try to prove you're wrong. And if you can't prove you're wrong, you're much you're more likely to be right. Not guaranteed because you still might be blinded in some ways or have some blind spots. But you're much more likely to be right if you don't 
make a business case by try to disprove your business case, try to disconfirm your beliefs. So that is when you're considering alternatives and when you're trying to prove yourself wrong. So considering the opposite, consider alternatives. That is a really powerful technique as well that helps address a number of cognitive biases, like overconfidence bias, halo effect, horns. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. It's like you mentioning um, debating and our, our our instinct and desire to like want to prove ourselves right um, reminds me about this other um, portion in your book when you're talking about debating and trying to overcome like truth denialism. Um, and you 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 suggest using this thing called like e-grip e um, instead. And I'm wondering, well, one, uh, when sort of how do you decide when to like try and use this debate style technique that you propose and when to use this um, considering alternatives and like, like, I guess when do you want to prove, when do you want to like use this um, technique to effectively debate and change someone's mind versus when you want to prove yourself wrong, I guess, if that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I talk about two techniques in my book. One is called collaborative truth-seeking and one is called this e-group. So collaborative truth-seeking is when you're not sure what's going on. You have an opinion, but you are really not sure what's going on. You might be right. You might be wrong. There's a good case to be made for the other po person's point. You know, when you're debating any big social issues, you know, you might be a strong advocate for gun control, but you might also acknowledge that, well, people who have a strong, I might be falling into the empathy gap and underestimating the emotions of people who have a strong desire to have a gun, right? So then you want to be open-minded and say, okay, let's try to figure out the other person's perspective and have a collaborative truth-seeking conversation. That is a conversation where again, you are not sure what's going on, where you're trying to figure it out, you have a perspective, you have a other person on the other side who has a perspective where you can trust that they will be fair and honest in trying to figure out what is the actual reality. You know, let's say, what are some policies that gun control advocates and gun rights advocates can agree upon? Maybe something like that, some compromise. And where you can be confident that you're the, of the person's motivations and they'll be fair and they will, will not be manipulative or something like that. That is the technique to use, collaborative truth-seeking, where you open yourself up to the other person and you do things like, well, here's my perspective. Here's what I think are the weaknesses of my perspectives. Here's what I think are the strengths. Here are the holes in my perspective where 
I'm not sure what should be going here. You know, maybe a, something like I have a strong aversion to guns myself, and I'm not sure what's happening in the minds of people who have a strong passion for guns. So I'd really like to understand what's their perspective, what's going on in their minds. And then that's kind of a, a hole in your mental map of the world that you would like to fill. And so that is, and the other person will be doing the same thing. So those are the outlines. The book talks much more about the specific techniques to use in collaborative truth-seeking. So again, the blind spots between us, how to overcome unconscious cognitive bias and build better relationships, talks about the techniques to use. We can go in depth into the techniques. But that's the basic idea behind this technique, behind this approach. Now, the other approach is when you're quite confident that the other person has an emotional block that prevents them from seeing reality. And that's where someone is just, there's obvious facts that demonstrate to you you're something like 99.9% confident that you're right in this. And there's some mental blocks in the other person's perspective. So, for example, if everyone in a department, so we're talking about business, if everyone in the department agrees that you know, Max is a really poor employee and a really bad contributor, but the someone in a supervisory position thinks that, well, you know, Max is not that bad and so on. And that might be a typical situation that, that you would find that there's that someone is blind to reality. A number of other things like this that, that you can see where people are blinded to reality. And you can probably see a number of leaders, political leaders, business leaders who are blinded to reality, and a number of people in relationships. I mean, how Often is it the case that when someone finds out that their significant other wants to have a divorce or annulment, right? They it comes completely out of the blue. Then they are shocked. Shocked, I tell you, <laughs> that this is what's happening. Well, guess what? There's no way you should have been shocked. You were not, you were completely ignoring the signs that would have led to this, that you should have really caught much earlier onward of your relationship being strained and under tension and that this is what's going to happen as a result. And people just don't like that. So there's a cognitive bias called the confirmation bias where we look for information that confirms our beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. And that's what often leads people to ignore problems in relationships and until they result in some really, really big catastrophe. (laughs) That's not good. And so what you want to be recognizing is that when there's emotional blocks at play, there's another technique called ECRIP that you mentioned. That's a much, much more effective technique when somebody is blinded to reality. And that starts with the other person's emotions. The typical way that we present information to people who are obviously wrong is we present facts and then we argue about them. That's a typical dynamic. Now, when's the last time you actually convinced someone to change their minds based on arguing with them? <laughs> I bet it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> no, that's not, and that's some because that's not the way that we human beings work. Arguments are meant to reinforce our status in a tribe, that's their function. And they're meant to show our superiority and to show ourselves right. So when you're starting an argument, the other person gets defensive and the other person blocks and blocks you off, even though their arguments might be very weak. So the points that they have might be very weak, but they kind of ignore you, they block you off because it feels bad to them 
to listen to you. And so they ignore that. So they might be nodding to what you're saying, but they have not changed their minds. A much more effective technique, as I mentioned, is EGRIP. That stands for emotions, goals, rapport, information, and positive reinforcement. The first thing you want to do is figure out other someone else's emotions. For example, let's talk about climate change. So somebody might, you might meet someone who has, who is a climate science denier. And by this point, the large majority of the American population, including many, many people on the right, including lots of political leaders on the right, have acknowledged that there's a serious climate change going on that's anthropocentric, so human-caused climate change, including a climate change caucus by Republicans in the House of Representatives. So clearly, there's a lot of acknowledgement of all sides. So the idea that climate change is not significantly impacted by, that climate is not significantly impacted by human activity is outside of what's called the Overton window, kind of the really acceptable range of perspectives. And it shows that somebody is pretty much blind to reality. But you want to figure out, okay, what are their emotions? And you want to ask, okay, rather than launching into a debate and showing all the information, statistics, you want to ask, hey, what, how do you feel about climate change? Why, why are you concerned about the science? What's going on here? So be curious, be open, listen to them empathetically, and try to figure out their emotions. So uh, someone might say something, this is, a con- this is a conversation I had actually, of something like, well, you know, all of those climate activists, they all want to shut down our jobs and, you know, they want to destroy our economy. That's the kind of response you might hear. And that will tell you that the person has anxiety and feels anxious about the economic impact of acknowledging climate change and mitigating it. So there is a so there is anxiety. There's anxiety around that. There's fear. There might be some frustration and anger about economic about the activists. But the anxiety, fear is the root here. Then you want to figure out their goals. Presumably, the goal of this person say so want to talk to them and say, okay, so you clearly you really want the economy to be doing well. And you can have a conversation about that. And in my example, where I had a conversation about this, they said, yeah, definitely. You know, there's so tough to get jobs nowadays. This was before the Great Resignation, about three, four years ago. And so, so tough to get jobs nowadays. And, you know, these environmental activists are making it harder for everyone. And so, okay, so now you're seeing that what their goal is. Their goal is to, and your shared goal, you also have a goal of having a good economy, right? No one wants the economy to go down a crapper. So. Then you're going to go to rapport. Rapport is a third stage where you build up rapport. You acknowledge their anxiety and say, oh, it sounds like you're really worried about what will happen if these climate activists get in power and start implementing their policies. And he was going to say, yeah, definitely. Oh, I'm really worried about that. You know, They're really going to cause our economy to go down. No jobs. It's going to be a real problem. So build up rapport. Show that you care about them. Show that you care about their goals, their emotions. Understand. And here, the fourth stage, only the fourth stage is information. So the information stage, you can talk about how, hey, you know, did you know that there's a number of green jobs that are being built by through solar power, through wind power, various other green jobs, you know, building electric cars that, you know, right here, I'm based in Columbus, Ohio, and there's an electric car factory that's being built here. 
electric truck factory. So all of these sorts of things are the things that a person might not know about and might like to hear. It's like, oh, really? And that Republicans and Democrats are working together on bills to support electric cars and various other electrification benefits and green power. That's definitely an area of alignment around the Republicans and Democrats. So good, so you're finding this information. And the next last step is positive reinforcement, where this person, okay, they shifted somewhat toward your perspective and they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, green power sounds like a good thing. Yeah, let's let's see what we can do about that. Maybe we can get some more jobs going out here in you know, coal country or something like that. And the last step is positive reinforcement so that they fix, you want to fix their emotions positively around this commitment. So say, oh yeah, I'm really glad that you uh, that, that we're on the same page, that we're seeing it this way, and it's really tough to change your mind. So I'm really impressed that you were able to shift your perspective. So it's not easy. And so you want to also positively reinforce the meta uh, aspect here, meaning above, the metacognitive aspect, how we think about our thoughts, how we process our thoughts. So the meta perspective here is that you want to encourage them to be more open to changing their minds and to have positive emotions about it. Again, emotions determine how we approach life, not our thoughts, not our rationality. So you want to have them have positive emotions about this. And so that's the five-stage e-group technique to use when you're pretty confident that you're right and the other person has emotional blocks around realizing that your perspective is the correct one. Now, it will not work if there's the other person has no emotional blocks, if they have a reasonable perspective for like the gun rights uh, sort of thing. If you are a gun control advocate and somebody is a gun rights advocate and they're a gun rights advocate because they have a passionate love for guns and hunting, well, that's not something that, that you will get them to change their minds using eGrip. So this naturally technique only works when you're facing someone who has an emotional block that do not, that causes them to prevents them from seeing reality clearly. Yeah, I think all those are really helpful tips. And I like <clears throat> something that you mentioned in the book is like, way you're helping people overcome maybe perhaps like their biases as well, like not to have like the superiority complex of like you being totally free of your, of your own biases. Um, so maybe like tapping into that collaboration, that, that, that collaborative truth seeking that you, that you mentioned. Um, something else um, I was kind of uh, wondering and thinking about sort of like at the level of like organizational or institutional um perhaps like in, in the book, you call them attribution errors. Um, I guess like I'm wondering um, like what sort of like policies or pauses should be set up that sort of like go beyond the individual that, you know, as an individual, like more often than not, we're like a product of the environment and institutional structures surrounding. Um, so I guess I'm just kind of wondering like your perspective, especially as a, as a consultant for like big companies how could like institutions help individuals and and I guess other organizations um, be able to communicate better with each other? Right. So the, there's a series of errors called attribution errors. One is called the fundamental attribution error, where we attribute other people's behaviors to their personality as opposed to the external context, as you mentioned, Sarah. No, another is the group attribution error, where we attribute a group's behaviors to their internal characteristics as opposed to the context in which they're functioning. A good example for this in companies is tensions between various departments. 
So you have, let's say, a tension between marketing and sales, where sales is telling marketing, oh, you're giving us bad leads, and marketing is telling sales, well, you just can't close the leads, the good leads we're giving you. Or between, let's say, sales and operations, where sales sells a product of some sort or a, a service, and operations like, why? Why did you sell that? That will cost us more to deliver than the prices we're giving in. It will be so hard to deliver. So where they have a lot of conflicts and tensions and frustrations, that's people get really upset with each other. And so that is an attribution error where people are attributing the, they're saying, oh, all salespeople are arrogant and overconfident. And that where salespeople say, well, all operations people are too risk averse and underconfident or something like that. And so they're attributing these personality these two personalities or groups, dynamics, groups, characteristics, whereas the really the context of the role in which they're in determines their behaviors and responses. Salespeople are incentivized if they're selling projects or products that are not good for the company, not good for the operations department, that means they're wrongly incentivized. (laughs) That means they're incentivized to sell whatever they sell as opposed to incentivized to sell something where the company can make good money and can deliver it with a high level of good customer service. If operations people are upset at the salespeople, but the, the operations people might be incentivized to produce something very high quality instead of something that might be good enough for the customer, but at a lower quality. So, say, so that's what the operations people might be incentivized to do. And so you want to be thinking about, okay, what are the incentives that are causing these tensions, these conflicts, these problems? And can you create shared incentives that would help both? Um, an example of that might be having, a po- having operations receive a part of commission of sales or having, having operations be part of the selling process and having, let's say if you're, so I was doing a project for an engineering consulting firm. And that was definitely a problem that where the salespeople who were selling the engineering consulting work were overselling. They were selling things that the company had, I mean, lost some money delivering because it took much more hours of their staff to, to deliver than it should have. So what we did to fix that, we in part, we gave part of the commission to the operations department to incentivize them to deliver well and be happy about it. We placed an engineer on the sales team for each cell sale so that the engineer was able to manage the situation and the technical specifications. And that was another dynamic that we did. We also made sure to reward salespeople, give them part of their commission at the big sale and another part of the commission at project completion. So that project completion, a bigger part. So it was something like one third to two thirds, if I remember correctly. And that was something that incentivized salespeople to sell something that actually was made a profit and was good for the company. So what has to change is that external context and the dynamics in which people relate to each other because of the external context. Uh, The external context very much shapes us in what we do. 
So if you're seeing problems and tensions in your company between various groups of employees, you should suspect it's not them. You should suspect it's incentives, that the policies, the structures, the systems you have in place that are causing tensions and conflicts. Yes, that almost sounds like creating sort of like the social infrastructures to like consider other perspectives also. Um. Yes, so that's, that's, that's what you're doing. You're creating this infrastructure, the social infrastructure with a, in a way that incentivizes people appropriately. So people respond to incentives, that's their context in a business. And so you're creating the right context for people to respond appropriately. So it's not simply social, it's a mixture of social, institutional, normative, cultural, a number of dynamics that are going on. Only social would be if you just place the engineer on the team, which is useful, but you need a number of other yeah, changes. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, like sort of stacking like the social, economic, cultural, normative. Yeah, mm-hmm. that all makes sense. We have two more questions. One of them is sort of like throughout the book, there are places that you ask like the reader to sort of pause and reflect and you really uh, force, and I might even go so far to say that you guilt and shame them in clever and self-referential ways into sort of journaling about the prompts as as you bring them up. Um, So I guess like what's the benefit that readers can look forward to getting out of taking, by taking a step back and like doing doing these prompts, even if they really don't want to. Okay, so why do I do that? I do that because research shows that just learning about cognitive biases and the biasing will not fix them. That just speaks to the intentional system. And the intentional system, it's like, oh, yes, I listened to this interview. It made sense. And then you go on with your life, (laughs) not changing your behavior one bit. And many people, unfortunately, who listen to this interview, that's exactly what will happen. Because they think, well, I got all the value from the interview, from just listening to the interview. That's, not, that's just not how it works. When you look at how we change our behavior, if you actually want, I mean, it's kind of like the, the leader of the organization. If you just want to make a token gesture towards telling people you should have social events for hybrid and remote employees, you can send out an email and remind them to do that their budget can be used for that purpose among many others. But if you actually want people to change their behaviors and have social events for hybrid and remote employees, which is incredibly important for retention, because again, you're building up those relationships, which are the keystone for effective employee engagement, productivity, morale, and retention. Then you want to make sure to direct some money toward that purpose and some time. And you're, we're not talking about money, we're talking about time. You need to realize where you have been making these mistakes. So that's the first step when you look at the research on what actually causes you to change your behavior, to debias, to improve the way you process information. You need to realize where in your life it, that led you to problems. And that is the pain. So you're going to be, it's painful, which is why I have to kind of, you know, encourage people <laughs> emotionally to do this because you're, autopilot system will not want to. It's painful. It's uncomfortable to think about those times. And so in order to change your autopilot system, you have to go into emotions. You can't just speak to the rationality, to the logic. And so you have to realize where the problem has caused you to have serious challenges in the past and how using these techniques could have 
helped you address these problems in the past. And then try to think, try to make a commit. Then next step would be to make a commitment to next steps, specific next steps that would help you address these problems in the future. So for example, if you're an optimist and you have a brilliant idea, maybe make sure to run it by a pessimist as a way to address these sorts of problems. So that's why I strongly emotionally encourage people to do the exercises. So I hope now all the readers feel incentivized to actually go go buy the book mm-hmm. and journal journal about these these prompts. Um, if they don't want to make a to- if they don't only want to make a token effort, indeed, <laughs> that's what you'd want to do. <laughs> so uh, hopefully, after our, our readers go go do this or listen to this podcast, at least. Um, and now we know how to overcome our biases about a problem now. Um, it makes me wonder, like, what, what's sort of like, what's next for you? Like, what's a project that you're excited about that um, you want to share with our readers as we wrap up? Well, the main thing that I'm working on is figuring out how people will relate in the future of work. So right now we have a huge transition to hybrid and fully remote work. By the end, when we're looking at various surveys and how people are working, we'll have over 10% of our workforce work fully remotely, of the, of course, of the people who can work fully remotely, of, you know, office workers and so on. And that's a huge, huge proportion of our workforce working fully remotely, not meeting their colleagues in person ever. And the large the, of the rest of the people, more than half will be working in a hybrid mode, coming into work you know, one, two days, three days a week. And that's, again, you're going to work very differently with your colleagues if you're coming in hybrid than if you're coming in in person. And the people who are coming in hybrid one, two, three days a week, they'll be coming in for a meeting or two and then leaving to go home. So they won't be walking the halls and seeing people that much. So this is something that people need to figure out and leaders need to figure out and employees need to figure out. The way that we'll be working with each other is going to be very different than the way we have worked with each other in the past, in January 2020 and so on. And so many leaders think that, well, you know, just snap your fingers and go back to January 2020, and that's fine because now we're spending one to two days a week in the office. And that's, that's the way you lead. No, you, that's not the way you lead because your social dynamics are going to be very different. Your relationships are going to be very different. Again, the retention, employment, productivity, engagement, morale are all dependent on relationships. First, the, the relationship with a supervisor. Second, the relationship with fellow employees. And if you don't have effective relationships in today's future of work economy, as we're transitioning to this new hybrid and even fully remote for some folks modality, then you're not going to retain people. Then you're not going to have good productivity, good morale, good engagement from them. So my passion right now is figuring out in this brave new world, how do you relate to other people effectively? And what are the ways that you do things like collaboration? How do you do co-working effectively? How do you do brainstorming effectively? So innovation, how do you make sure that people are accountable effectively when you can't just walk the office and just see them and chat to them as so many leaders like to do? So that's what I'm really passionate about now. And uh, actually... I finished up a book called "Leading called Returning to the Office and Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams. So that's my newest book. And that's what I'm working on right now. Awesome. That's very exciting. I feel like I, I, I were, I'm one of those 10% people who work fully remote. And I definitely, I definitely feel that it's a, it definitely changes your relationships for sure. <laughs> so. And so it's important to figure out how 
to relate to other people effectively in these sorts of dynamics from an institutional, you, you can figure it out as an individual and you talk about that, but really from an institutional organizational perspective, that's where I'm really passionate about what kind of social, cultural, normative infrastructure, economic infrastructure is needed in this. Yeah. Process. Well, I'm excited to read, to read that one too. Um, and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk about uh, blind spots with, with me. Thank you so much for inviting me, Sarah. It was a pleasure. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.